Welcome back to another very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Before we get to today's episode, one quick housekeeping item. If you're a fan of the show and you want these episodes in your inbox every week as soon as they're released, go to forfintechsake.com and sign up there. We've started a little bit of an email newsletter. It's really just the podcast in your inbox. So you have a reminder, nothing too crazy, but if you're interested, go to forfintechsake.com and sign up there. All right, let's get to the good stuff. We have an amazing episode coming to you this week. My guest is Rob Petrozo, co-founder and chief product officer at Rally. Rally is something I've been following for a long time. It's a platform for buying and selling equity shares in collectible assets. They're on an absolute tear. And I should mention they're also SEC regulated. So this is not some fly by night collectible asset sales mechanism. This is a real fintech company that is moving incredibly fast and doing some fascinating stuff. They're consistently adding new collectible assets from Jackie Robinson rookie card to a fossilized triceratops skull that I think is releasing soon or has released. But yeah, a dinosaur skull. Rally combines so many pieces of our modern culture into one fascinating investment opportunity. Rob and I discuss his background in music, design, how he met Kanye, John Legend, John Monopoly, some fascinating humans, how he got into investing, good and bad, and how that's all culminated into building Rally. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Rob Petrozo. The way that your life has kind of intermingled these cultural aspects of music and art and now delving into finance in this world of collectible assets, like I will shut up now, but I'm very excited to talk to you, bro. So welcome Good to FinTech Sake, Crub. Thank you so much. And likewise, man, this is a situation where like, you know, for FinTech Sake, just as a podcast name, it doesn't give the implication that you're going to meet somebody who understands that journey in a way that seems it's so nonlinear, but that's somebody who gets it and sees why it could lead to a career in finance, I think is uh, refreshing too. So I appreciate it, man. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's uh, we don't need from my perspective, too many more investment bankers turned FinTech founders. Like we need more people that, you know, have an understanding of culture and an understanding of, why we do the things we do, right? Like, why am I wearing this, this t-shirt with a tuxedo that Virgil Abloh made that doesn't make sense to anybody except a certain subset of the world. So we need more of you, my friend, more of you. Much appreciated. For sure. So let's, let's start there. Um, first off, if anybody can, you know, kind of read between the lines on your accent, let's start with where you're from and what part of Brooklyn, uh, and just kind of the early days of Rob's life. Like what was your initial business experience? Like, just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you, you got to this place you're at today. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I wear it on my sleeve that I'm from Brooklyn, but also for what it's worth, like I, uh, there was a time where I thought I was going to be, I wanted to be an actor and I was going to uh, a lot of like auditions and open calls. And uh, I had this agent who was this maniac on uh, 35th Street in Manhattan. So I'm like 16 and started going there and getting like my call sheets and stuff. And she'd be like, you got to drop the accent. So I, I really tried to get rid of it between age like 15 and 25 unsuccessfully. But it used to be way, way, way more prevalent than it is now. But uh, originally from Brooklyn. So I live my, my family's been here forever. 
Uh, my grandparents came here and, and opened up a, uh, a candy shop in, uh, on Sullivan street, in Manhattan, found their way into a, a part of Brooklyn called sunset park on, uh, in the sixties and like eighth Avenue. And, uh, I grew up there in a place where everybody, it was a mix of people. So it was like my Italian family and there was like a Polish family across the street. And, uh, there's a Mexican family down the block and there was a Chinese family that we shared our building with. So I was friends with all these different people. A lot of them were first generation. And uh, you start to sort of develop like into this, this personality around these people that I think, you know, when you're five, six, seven years old, it's super important from a developmental standpoint to be around a lot of different things. And that's part of like the promise of the internet. And what we're seeing now is that a bunch of groups can get together and come up with some cool stuff and have become from completely different walks of life. So I had that early on. Um, my family was always super supportive in like the creative arts. And my mom was an artist and my, my, uh, my parents owned a small restaurant in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And you got to see a lot of different characters coming in and out. And they were kind of like, everybody was sort of a hustler to a certain degree. You pick up those cues along the way. And I realized like early on that I want to be creative, that I want to be a business owner, that I want to do, be able to do sort of any of the things I want to do because all the people around me were kind of doing that too. So that's kind of like the formative years. And yeah. then, uh, and then it kind of, from there, it's, it, you know, stayed in Brooklyn for a long time, uh, met a lot of different great people, including my founders that I have now at Rally. And then there's a bunch of stuff in between that's uh, very, very nonlinear to get to the point of working in finance and in tech. Well, I'm, I'm going to pull on some threads there because that shit in the middle that's nonlinear is some of the more fascinating stuff. Like I want to talk about rally and everything else, but there's some stuff in the middle there that's worth diving into. The first thing that kind of fascinates me about you that I'm curious about your perspective on is how much do you think that you're... I don't know. I kind of get tired of the term entrepreneurial spirit, but I, I think it's like the right term for this. How much of that do you think is nature and how much of that do you think is nurture? Cause it sounds for sure nurtured, but also having talked to you a little bit, like your energy is pretty innate and like, I doubt you would just be able to just chill all day. So yeah. how, how, how do you balance those two things? What do you think it is? I, th I mean, it's a, it's the bad, the bad answers that in my opinion, it's a mix of both. But again, I had I had like young parents and my I, my grandmother kind of did a good job helping raise me, too. And she was pretty young and understanding and they let me do whatever I wanted to a certain degree as long as I wasn't getting in trouble. So I think mm. part of that is that you get to find yourself in the situation that you got to get yourself out of or you have to learn something new on the fly. All that type of stuff to me feeds entrepreneurial spirit for sure. But that being said, too, like, you know, I was around like people who want to start their own businesses and I was around people who want to build stuff. And literally, I think we talked about this before, like. In the backyard at my, my, my family's house on 63rd Street, there were a bunch of kids who were like the older kids who were like skateboarders and they were building half pipes in the backyard and they were going to scrounge up any, any type of stuff they can get to like build ramps. And I would just tag along and do stuff with them. So it was always, you know, tech didn't exist the way it does now in the 90s, but it was always building. And the people around me were always building stuff. So it became impossible to ignore. And I think that when you're 10 years old, 15 years old, whatever, seeing all these people around you do what you think are the cool, great things and build from the ground up, if there's that little bit of spark and you have the freedom to develop and build it on your own too, you're not going to, you're not going to find yourself into like a typical nine to five. It feels like and That's kind of how it happened. Yeah. So it seems like art and just like that general creative drive that you have is one of the things that pulled you into uh yeah, not an average nine to five is a fucking understatement, I think, but let, let's go to the, let's go to good music. Let's go to the, your time in the music industry. Like, 
how did you meet Kanye? How did you end up working in that side of the world? How did you end up going to Atlanta and doing a lot of that stuff? Like talk us, talk us through that wild story because I'm still trying to pull my job off the ground from when we first met, when you told me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's weird. It's a, it sounds way, it sounds way more fantastic in retrospect, but at the time, like it was just heads down, just working. So I think that that kind of thing where it's like, just start working, put out as much work as possible it leads to opportunities 100% happen for me. So when I was in college, I went to school in Philadelphia and I went to school for art. Uh, I, you know, I stopped taking math classes in like junior year of high school. And the idea was like, I'll use creative, I'll use art to get me somewhere. My, for what it's worth, like I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And that to me was a big thing. And there were times along the way where I definitely want, like, was like, ah, I don't need college. I'll start working. I just want to get stuff done. And I realized now like finishing school was the best thing I could have done. Mm. Doing it with art is what got me a degree. So that was like, there was no chance if I had to go to real classes, I was graduating from college. So being able to draw and have seven hour, you know, fine art labs is kind of what led to like a design career and all those other things. But along the way, like I always want to sort of have a side business or some sort of hustle on the side to make some money. Cause you're in school. Yep. You want to go out and want to go to dinner at a girlfriend. I want to do cool things, but it's tough when you just, you're sitting there and like, I'm just going to class, going home, going to sleep. So I, uh, Music felt like a place where creative and art was starting to take shape. And this is in, you know, early 2000s. And uh, everybody was sort of starting to put mixtapes out. Everybody started to put out like music, their own singles. And the idea mm -hmm. of going independent and having your own creative aesthetic and not letting the label push it was very prevalent. So I started sort of connecting with people online um, who were like doing really cool stuff and putting out their own music and said, like, let me do the covers for your for what you're working on. One of those people was uh, somebody named DJ Drama in Atlanta. And another one was uh, Green Lantern, who was a DJ here in New York, who at the time was like uh, DJing for Eminem. He was starting to work with Eminem on a bunch of stuff. So Sirius Radio just came out. There are a bunch of these projects going around. I just started doing designs and throwing them out and seeing what would happen if anybody would use them. And this is when I'm like 18, 19 years old. So DJ Drama wound up using it uh, for a few different people. And a couple other people who had a little bit of a voice, they weren't necessarily in New York or Philadelphia, but they started using this work. And uh, one time, one of those covers that I did was at a printer in, uh, in Queens in a big box outside of like the, uh, the um, reception area. And John Monopoly, who was Kanye's manager at the time, had wa literally walked in to pick up something else and saw it. And he said, who did this? And I had my phone number on the back. And uh, they said he had this kid, Rob Petrozo, he's in Philadelphia. And he called me in, uh, this is like 2004. And he was like, listen, uh, I have this artist, Kanye West. And a lot of people didn't know who it was at the time. So he was a producer. He had his deal. His album was about to come out. And anybody who was paying attention was like, this is going to change music without question. And me and my friends knew who he was. But a lot of people still were like under the radar. Jay-Z was still the biggest thing on earth back then. So uh, he was like, we, we have this deal with Sony. We're going to um, be doing our own label. They had a couple of artists. It was... Someone named GLC, uh, Consequence was another rapper who still works with Kanye and a bunch of stuff. John Legend, and they were working on getting Common on board too. And then a couple other acts uh, that were just kind of sprinkled in. But they had no real brand or no real sort of uh, design element to the business. So he's like, just come in, meet everybody. And uh, if it's something you want to do, maybe we think about trying to work together on something. I was just about to graduate. I was like, yeah, F it, I'll come in, I'll see. So I walk into the Sony building. It's all the way tucked in the back on the 17th floor. And uh, Kanye wasn't there this time. It was John, uh, Don C, and like uh, another guy named Happy who was, who was working with them forever. A bunch of guys from Chicago, Eddie Blackman, all of them are super successful now. They all have their own thing going on. But this tight-knit group from Chicago, and they wanted to treat it like a startup. They wanted good music to treat, be treated like a startup. And good was the acronym for getting out our dreams. It was the same idea that I think a lot of people my age were thinking through. 
in terms of like what they want to do. You want to take an idea, bring it to fruition and make it real. And that was Kanye's vision. That was John's vision. That was Don's vision. That was something where they knew it wasn't just music. It was going to be a bunch of different products. It was going to be clothing and they had a million different ideas. So I met with them, I sat down and they were like, listen, we're going to be doing a bunch of different stuff, branding, tours, music, merch, websites, all these different things. He's like, just start coming in a couple of days a week. If you think it's cool and it works out for you, stick around. And that's what happened. So after like three, three years on and off, working on a bunch of their stuff, on a bunch of stuff for Kanye and for his foundation, a bunch of stuff for, you know, tours for John Legend and all these individual artists, stuff with like uh, DJ A-Track and everybody who was coming in and out. Everybody there though had to treat it like a startup. The idea was that everybody there wasn't going to necessarily be there for life. It was going to be like a finite period of time, but to leverage what you were working on and take it elsewhere if you could, and no one's going to stop you from doing that. So like, you know, everybody there, I'm probably the least successful. Everybody that was in that early, early group. And I mean, as an art director there, like I'm the, le- I, I'm the least successful person that came out of good music, no question. Because everybody kind of treated it like a hustle and got to a point that they created their own brand out of it. So that was like the first start, real startup experience that I had was working with those guys. What, what was that creative process like? Because I mean, I've been, you know, I, I think I started, I followed I followed, I've been following Kanye, been a fan since the pink polo days, you know? And I mean, he's been an artist and a visionary from the beginning. I mean, so is John legend, all of, I mean, everybody you're naming, I'm like just salivating because this is all the people that are, you know, at the top of my Spotify uh, and have been forever, but are they hard asses? Like, was it like, this is bullshit art, get this out of here. They tear it apart. And then you got to do a second one. Or was it like, maybe we could change the color on this. Or was it just, dude, this is great. Let's run with this. Like keep, keep going yeah. down that road. Yeah. I'll be honest. It was, it was a different type of experience because the critiques weren't necessarily our critiques. They were product critiques. So it was like mm. Kanye always had a very specific vision that he wanted. And there was, um, so the, everybody's email addresses were the management group, which is, which was hustle. It was the name of it. So everyone's email was like, we hustle at we hustle.com. And that was always like, I always wanted one of those emails. I never got one, but you know, BMG one. And then my personal email, yeah. but the, everything was like, there'd be an email chain back and forth. Like we would do, um, they were going to do uh, bike week in Florida once. And they were all going to be at, uh, in Miami at the, um, oh, I forget what hotel they were at. They were at short club. Everybody was at short club. That was always a spot they stayed at when they went to, uh, when they went to Miami. And it was like a four day window. They realized they had to get a bunch of t-shirts done, but there was no design. There was no idea. There was, there was no thought about like licensing or anything else, what we're going to do. So the email chain started and it's Don and John. And they're like, well, let's think about doing something. And then it's Kanye saying like, let's do the, uh, let's flip the Harley Davidson logo. And then it's like, all right, you got a day to get everything done. And that was start to finish just the design, the prints, the approvals and everything shipped to Florida. So that's how a lot of the stuff happened where it would be like the spark of an idea, very reactive but you're put in a position that you have like four days to get it all done, start to finish. It's got to be right. So that's like, I scrambled to call my cousin who had a screen printing place still in sunset park, actually. I'm uh, thinking about like whether or not I just take this logo and turn it into a good music logo, or if I'm asking people for licensing or I just run with it and we're doing a billion different things, but it was like, just let me know when it's done. If it's done right is when it became product. If it wasn't, they would just go to somebody else. So that always kept you on your toes. You know what I mean? Like even to this day, I was working recently because I'll still stay in contact and I want to, I always want to be a part of what they're working on. And John called me like, uh, John Monopoly called me maybe like three months ago. And there was a new artist that Kanye was working with that was like spoken word a little bit. Mm. And they went to get a single cover done. And he's like, yo, you got time to knock this out. So on a weekend, I just put something together quick. And like, I half-assed it a little bit, no question, because I just wanted to get it done. But I realized like, it just, my stuff just didn't come out. Somebody else's came out. You know what I mean? Like it's, it was the same thing back then. It was always next man up to a certain degree. And you got to take the idea 
take the vision and take it from start to finish, which is so much of what I've instilled in my work now too. So that was the first iteration of that for sure. Bro, it's it's hard for me not to just keep asking questions about all this, but I need limited time and we should get to fintech eventually. So I, I very it much like, a, it, it very it gets to it got to fintech quick because to give you the, the segue, we were working on so much stuff over there and websites were like this brand new thing and building little bots and little cool stuff along the way was always something I was working on with some of the kids there and some of the interns at Dev Jam and at, at Sony. And it was just it was a little group of people who were like young creatives just knocking stuff out. That's actually what led to, to startup and tech is that I was just building these little mini sort of portals and these websites for individual artists. And you realize like 2007, 2008 comes along and the iPhone's out. Everybody realized like design was going to change. Finance was going to change. The, your mobile personality was going to be a real thing. And it led me you know, out of that into tech, which was like a natural progression. So along with that natural progression, talk to me about your, your investment history, because I think that's one of the other things that's kind of led you to rally was maybe some, some missed opportunities, uh, along the way. Yeah. I mean, we say it all the time. It was like, while I was working at good, I was trying to do my own side thing. Like I said, everybody had their own hustle going to a certain degree. So just to keep it as cool and as hip as possible, I've got a space in Dumbo, which at that point, like most deaf had just bought a place there and Kanye had real estate there. So in my mind, I was thinking like all the cool kids are starting to put money in this space and it's Brooklyn. I'm from here. So that was like the first, the first place that I thought to go like have a home base. So I, I leased a small office there. It was a thousand dollars a month. It was like 1200 square feet, which is, you never get that now for that price. Right. But right. it was in on 25 Washington street. It was on that super iconic block with cobblestones. That's in every picture. Yeah. I was on the fifth floor. It was suite 525. It was like a big corner spot. And every day was like, it felt creative. And I was in my head, I'm like, man, it'd be great to live here one day. And then maybe two years in, they uh, converted it to condos. And the ownership group gave us the option to get like a pre-construction price on it. I had stashed a little bit of money away, but I had a bunch of money in the market at that point too, in like 2007, 2008. Ooh. So I was like, man, yeah, so it gets worse from there. So then I'm like, man, I don't know. I'm spending like $50,000 out of pocket. And they're like, no, it's an interest only loan. And you don't owe many other principal. I'm like, man. I'm not going to do that. So I wound up letting it go. I lost almost everything in the actual markets. And now oh. in retrospect, owning Dumbo real estate, it's, it's literally a Jay-Z lyric. Like it was, a, it was hand, handed to me. And I was like, man, this is a bad, bad idea. I don't want to put all the money out of pocket. So that was kind of what led to like me and Chris and Max, my co-founders. We all have a story like that. And all of us working together and working in a creative space to a certain degree led to like, if we can cap if we can find a way to make people at least be able to put their money where their mouth is at a meaningful price point but not have to break the bank they won't have those same missed opportunities that we did so that was the first of many missed opportunities but that was the catalyst for like uh really trying to understand real estate and understand investing from the ground up was missing that opportunity yeah i uh i was at the gym the other day and i turned on 444 and story of oj came on and i was like oh rob like right at the i could have bought a place in dumbo before it was dumbo for like two million yeah. <laughs> that same building today is worth 25 million guess how i'm feeling yeah, yeah dumbo. Dumbo. <laughs> it's crazy now because there's a every now and then a, a picture pops up, pops up that's on uh, google images and it's this really iconic shot like uh with depth looking at the manhattan bridge on that block and my car is like the first car on the block. And it reminds me every time I see oh. the picture, I'm like, yeah, that was, that was, that would have been a good time to buy it. But for what it's worth, you know, being 25, 26, 27 years old, you know, and spending every dollar you have on anything is just not feasible for a lot of people. And it wasn't yeah. for me. And it wasn't the right time to make that, to make like an all in type of decision on real estate, no less too. So 
the, the information asymmetry was way different. Like now it's a little bit easier to find out what something's worth and do some education and find groups of people who've been through it a little bit and communicate directly with them. Back then you were on your own. Like if you were a kid owning anything, owning equity in something and like, you know, being able to sort of play the long game wasn't something you even thought about because it wasn't an option. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So to your point on the, the going all in on one thing, I think that's a really good thread to pull on and take us into, take us into rally and the fractional ownership of these things and how you're kind of breaking them down into shares. So let's start with, um, the seed of the idea, like where in the hell did you guys come up with the idea of just what this thing is? How did you decide to go get regulated by like, who the hell decides to go get regulated by the sec? Like why, why are you, such masochists and tell me that whole story. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, now we'll fast forward like a bunch of different startups and all these things happening, but it led to a point that, you know, in my, in my early thirties, I'm sitting with myself and Chris, who's uh, one of the smart, most analytically smart people I've ever met. And he's in high school. He was a couple older, a couple years older than me. And he's somebody who he was like the smart kid. Everybody was like, that's the money to follow when he leaves school. (laughs) He's doing so we always stayed in touch. We were also the only two kids out of our friend group for, to a certain degree that really were in tech. And he kind of saw the around the corners in the way that I didn't. So I always stayed in contact. We always caught up and we always said along the way, like we'll work on something together at some point when the time is right. So we were, uh, we were sitting in a coffee shop on like 35th street in 2015 to talk about the future. And he was like, I got this idea. It was probably 2014 actually. He's like, I have this idea. And it was based on his missed opportunity. He had a chance and he put a little money away. He could have bought, his house, or he could have bought this, this car, a vintage Porsche that he's like a huge car nut. He knows every detail about every one of these cars. He's also the first person that explained to me that a car could be an appreciating asset. It's not an automatically drive off the lot depreciating asset. It has to have certain elements and nuance, yeah. but it exists as a real asset. Yeah. So he talked to his parents about it, bought the house. Cause that's a smart thing to do. And then now, you know, 10 years later, he's flat on the house and he would have been up like 20 X on the car. So that was the first one. He's like, there's this huge enthusiast group for classic cars, but I knew about to a certain degree because it was always on TV. He was like, they love classic cars. They know everything about it. They want an inroad. There's no way to do it without spending every dollar. And even then you need to have access and you understand how the dynamics of auction houses work. He was like, there's a way to make this a real product. So I started sitting down with him and thinking, we're like, man, there are so many different products that this applies to, so many different items and historical rarities that this applies to, where you have a 16, 17 year old who knows more about like this car or this baseball card than the person who actually owns a five or $10 million version and never sees it, has it tucked away somewhere. So we started thinking like this marketplace could exist. At the same time, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, all these crowdfunding platforms started to get a lot of traction and they were the place to go if you were launching a new product. So we said we can combine that marketplace dynamic of a stock market and what already exists and people are used to right now and that crowdfunding element, we can maybe like kind of IPO these things and we'll worry about how inherently tradable they'll be later. We'll talk to lawyers about that. Yeah. So that led to like, you know, we started just making it. So Chris started talking to a bunch of other people. He brought Max in, who was a mutual friend. He went to college with Chris and he was at Barclays doing private placement deals forever. So he was our third co-founder. Uh, he understood the, the really complex stuff that we didn't. Yeah. From a product perspective, I was just like, listen, let me make this pretty and make it work and make it usable. And Chris was like, all right, well, you guys are doing that. I'll start planting the seed to, to maybe think about talking to people who really have a little bit of cash or in business, understand how this could work. So after like, you know, a year and a half, we're basically knocking through this stuff. We had a real version, like a working version of this product. And then it was like throughout that whole time, it was talking with lawyers and figuring out what we could do, what we couldn't do. 
after around 18 months of dealing with, you know, lawyers and a ton of money out of pocket to build it and everybody leaving their jobs and making it a very real thing and not a side hustle. It was like, oh shit, we have a thing we could actually bring to market, but let's try to actually get this approved and make it work. So Chris actually out of pocket bought the first car that we did. It was a 1977 Lotus. It was a $38,000 car, but it hit all the fine points. It was this, it was a rare car. It was a really great example. It was something that we believed was, was to a certain degree at the time, not getting the same attention as the Ferraris and Lamborghinis of the era. It like represented us. It was the perfect thing to launch with. And we submitted that to the SEC with our lawyers. And after a few months, they came back and were like, all right, we understand it. You can let people invest in this. And then we realized too, like it's going to be a very, that was a long process. And we had to do that a thousand more times. We we're like, this is going to be a very cash intensive business. We probably have to raise some money. We can't bootstrap this. So then like we took that product and just went, knocked on every door. Anybody who talked to us, any VC, individual investor, someone who just liked us and happened to have $10,000, like we talked to them and got as many smart people involved as possible and did our first round and truly launched in uh, December of 2017. What was the general, so I guess the question's twofold. One is what was the general reaction you got from VCs? And then what was the general reaction you got from early users? Cause you and I talked about this previously that like when I first heard about rally, it's back when you guys were called rally road specifically and cars yeah. were the focus. I was like, what? Why? That's what, we want. That's what we want. We want that. What moment? Like, yeah. well, you know what? like, you know, when you launch a product in my mind or launch any company, there's two ways to think about it. One is like, is this a cash grab? I want to make as much money as possible. And everybody's going to get rich off of it. And that's always like what people think about it. They think about it. The other way is like, can we build something from the ground up? And if it's great money and all that stuff will come with it, everybody be, be everybody on the platform and who's a part of the platform, their lives will be enriched in some capacity. And you don't have to be like, you know, curing a disease or doing something that's soup that's like the crazy, completely change the rotation of the earth thing, mm -hmm. which are like, you know, the smartest people in the room do that. The scientists, the biologists, and the people that really have have their hands in like that public sector, the ones doing that. But there's ways to do really unique stuff and not think about making tons of money while doing it. And that's the way we did it. Unfortunately, it's hard for a VC to understand how that's going to pay dividends later on. That's going to pay itself off or pay a fund off. So when we first started telling people about it, everybody, family, friends, like a lot of people were just like, that's cool, but it's like a small, they thought it was a small thing. And that was a little bit by design too. Like it was called Rally Road because it was the opposite of Wall Street. That's the way we thought about it. The double entendre was that it, the road is a car. Oh. But we were like, we had a feeling if this really worked, there was going to be a ton of copycats and we knew we needed like a two year head start. So like make everybody think it's just a car thing. That's fine. And in the deck, we'll put a page that shows that it's all these other asset classes, but cars to start. So every VC we pitched, everyone we told, we kind of still kept that part a little bit of a secret. And the result was like people saying that's a really small addressable market. And that mm. the, the total addressable market is still something that every VC wants to talk about and hear about. So everybody looked at it like that's a nice small project. And they always said like a couple of things. And one of them was like, yeah, worst case scenario, you have a nice small business, a nice, like, you know, nice hundred million dollar business. That's small to VC. So that's how they always thought about it. We had bigger visions for it. So trying to pitch that big vision it just wasn't going to work early on. It was hard for people to get their head around the asset class and the fact that we would lead the space or be the trusted resource. All that led to, I'm not even joking. I had to guess 300 people, 400 people said no. That's not even an exaggeration. And we always talked about like me, Chris and Max would be in a meeting and on the way out, everybody would be like, man, this is going to be, this is going to work at some point. Like, you know, good luck to you guys. Congratulations. You got something great. And they gave us like a high five. And we always said like, 
if high fives paid the bills, man, we'd all be super rich. Like we got paid in high fives for the first year and a half, basically. Yeah. But then like once we launched the product, things started to change a little bit because it was all word of mouth and people really started to care. And that was like, there were a couple of inflection points along the way that turned it and made it real. Well, I love the, I mean, at this point, this episode is going to be marked explicit anyway, so I'll just say it, but I love the testicular fortitude. No, no, it's my thing. It's my bad. I think I said fuck earlier. Um, the testicular fortitude that it took to just like press through like the, the chutzpah that it took to be like, no, this is a thing that's going to happen. Like the number of VCs or the, not the number of VCs, the number of founders that I talk to. And, you know, if you're listening and I've had a call with you recently and I'm shitting on you, I apologize. But, uh, the thick, the thickness of the skin and ability to do the, to do the repeat of that conversation three to 400 times. When founders tell me that they've talked to 30 investors and they just don't think it's going to work, I'm like, you, like, you're, you're in the first inning. Like, you are exactly 30 is like a week. You know, that's like if you're running in a stat, like, real fundraising process, like, you should talk to 30 in the last two weeks legitimately, or like, what are you doing with your day? So, anyways, that is a side note. (laughs) It is a numbers game. You're right. It is a numbers game. It's something where, like, early on, you know, we were doing it. Ask Chris. Like we were taking pages out of everybody's book. I was going to the Apple store and just putting our homepage on every screen inside the store. You know what I mean? Like anywhere that we could be a part of a conversation. Cause for what it's worth, man, it is so easy at this point for people to throw a conversation into the abyss on Twitter or Instagram and hope it hits. But like, you know, you got to kick the door down a little bit. Things move too fast for you to worry about what people are going to look at you like, or what they're going to think about you. Or yeah. when you walk out of the room, they're like, that was a dumb idea. You're going to get that. But like in finance in particular, it's a zero sum game sometimes where it's make as much money as possible and like in as short a time as possible. And the way that we always looked at it was like, we're building something great. We know it. I don't need somebody who's never seen it before to not validate it because the history is already validated. There was a, there was a time like independent of how you think you can look at history and say, it's going to predict the future to a certain degree. And mm-hmm. just like in the thirties and forties, like, you know, stocks were too risky for pension plans. And you know, in the sixties, it was all bonds. And then they started to integrate stocks but REITs were this brand new thing. And everyone's worried like real estate packaged up as this investment. Then by like 2001, REITs were, you know, on the S&P and now they're 3% of the weight. It's the same thing as utilities and energy. So like right now for us, we always looked at it as collectibles. We're going to be that too, regardless of whether they were going up and down. History has shown that the people who are early to that party, investors, people that pay attention, just people that, that write about it and talk about it. They're the people that predict the future and predict where we're going and see around those corners. We knew we wanted to be that and we didn't want to be the people that watched and were like, shit, that was a good idea. We really should have just done that. So we yeah. put a little bit of an end game on it. We were like, if we're still doing the same thing a year and a half from now and it's not working, that's different. But we started getting people when we launched that first car, like all of a sudden we had somebody call and wanted to give us like $4,000 who we'd never met before to invest in this car. And I was like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. This isn't a family or a friend. It's not a one degree of separation. A random person found us, trusted our platform, trusted the offering that we had live and made a phone call to an unlisted number to say, how do I give you $4,000? Like that to me was a little bit of a tipping point. We're like, this could maybe be real now, you know? Just maybe. Yeah. I mean, the way that history rhymes really is fascinating because as much as I was like, what is this? Right. Like it was, I was at empire startups, I think 2017 or something like that. I don't think it was you on the stage, but it was one of your co-founders and just talking about the car side of it. And I was like, I don't like people out here in these, like people are in debt. Like this, like this is what the world needs right now. And like the answer isn't, this is what the world needs, but like this, the answer is like, this is what 
the world should have an opportunity to have, right? Like look at, look at Jerry Seinfeld's garage, right? Look at the Koch brothers basement full of wine. Look at every billionaire that's hoarding, you know, paintings around different places. Like this isn't that new, but you're democratizing it, which based on the day that we're, uh, you know, the day that we're recording this and a lot of the shit going on with Robin hood, maybe is not as good of a word as was, but you're democratizing access to shit that used to be, you know, the, the purview of the Koch brothers and the purview of billionaires that have, you know, security guards guarding the things that we're, you know, logging into our phone to be able to buy a portion of an invest in. So it's like a, it's a groundbreaking shift in the way that, average Americans can have access to something that, that only the elite have had for so long. So I, that piece of it, like the <laughs> hilariously, the Robin hoodie piece of it um, is pretty fucking beautiful. I love that part. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. If what it's worth, like, you know, they, they Robin hood Coinbase, so many people kicked the door down for us. So like, you know, to set the baseline, we always looked at Rally as being a place where you can invest in the things you really care about. It was the idea that like, you know, at its heart, we're this platform for, for buying and selling stock and high value assets, but we want them to have a history of appreciation. We want them to be culturally relevant. We want to do something we can get on the ground floor. We want you to put your money where your mouth is. It's been hard to do that. So like Tesla, the stock and Tesla, the car are very different. They had, they both have their own individual cults to a certain degree. But I respect Tesla because there is a lot of overlap where people want to buy the product, they want to have the stock, they want to buy the tequila when, when Elon puts it out, they want to be part of that whole conversation. If your conversation is Pokemon, if your conversation is Mickey Mantle, if your conversation is 60s era Ferraris, if your conversation is vintage literature, we want Rally to be the place for that. And we want you to be able to learn from others and, and really be a part of that whole process and understand the valuations and be a part of the best possible museum quality items. But we want you to do that at the at the where you're comfortable. So if a dollar is all you want to spend on the first edition, Great Gatsby, I want to make that possible. That's how we started the company. That's how we do every now, like, you know, we have a dinosaur fossil going live yeah. in the app tomorrow. Was growing. And it's like that they, we want to, people might, everybody learns about dinosaurs when they're younger. Right. And that was like this crazy nostalgia thing for me. We always wanted to get to that point, but people don't understand it necessarily as an investment. And it's something that the rich, like Jeff Bezos has a T-Rex in his house. You know what I mean? Like this is just, <laughs> yeah. they're doing it. So it's not like it hasn't been happening. Right. But now this zero yield world that we're in, people are finding their way to it. We don't necessarily want to like, this is none of this is investment advice. We don't want to push anybody towards any investment ever. But if it's there and you know enough about it that you feel like you make an educated decision, you should have that opportunity. So why not? Yeah. And I mean, the fascinating part for me is like, even if it's a, because of the threads of culture, because of the threads of like, this being all of this being in a lot of cases, stuff we grew up with or stuff that we aspire to. I almost have this feeling like I, I've, since we talked, I'm a user now um, I'm going through the micro deposit piece. So I haven't actually invested yet, but I'm, I'm actually excited to now because I had this moment where I'm like, Oh, even if I lose money on every single thing. And again, this is not investment advice, especially since I'm talking about losing money, but even if I lose money on every single investment I make inside of rally, like I am going to be the Dos Equis man at every party I go to. 
right? Because I own part of a T-Rex head or I own part of, you know, what, whatever it is. Like I got stories now because I invested on rally and I now have partial ownership. And let me tell you about my share in the first edition, great Gatsby. You think you're cultured motherfucker. I'm cultured, you know, like that's, that's so awesome. worth, Like you, you hit it on the head. So we always talk about like people that find their way to our platform. And a lot of it is driven by passion. So we look at it as passion led investing. So the idea is that like your passions, your emotions, the things you care about, they're going to lead you here. But at a certain point, we see everybody that comes to the platform get really educated on all these other asset classes and it becomes a true financial instrument for them. It becomes something where, you know, they might feel better whether they make money, lose money, whether they're flat, no matter what happens long-term, you might feel better having your money in something you know versus a ticker symbol that is potentially controlled by a group of people that you don't necessarily want controlling it too. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, it's very topical now, but I think everybody is starting to, at every walk of life is starting to realize that there are things that are more important to them than a ticker symbol. And there are things they know more about where they might feel they have an unfair advantage to invest in the things they know best. Making that an option for somebody was always the goal for us. And it just so happened that it, it caught on and people cared about it. Yeah. I mean, for, so for people listening and trying to read between the lines for the record, Rob and I are recording this on the day that, uh, <laughs> that GameStop, yeah, on, on GameStop day, uh, when Robinhood halted trading for a couple different stocks. So if you're sensing any, uh, subtextual shade, it's because it's being thrown and we move on. So that four grand you were talking about earlier, uh, and the guy that just called you out of left field actually made me think of something I wasn't planning to ask you, but it's one of my favorite questions for founders that are truly doing something new, right? Like you got to be, my skepticism about you guys was because I was like, this, like, this doesn't exist. This doesn't need to exist. And then you go further. Everyone should be skeptical for what it's worth. You see a new company coming out, trying to sell you shares of a car. You should ask every question, read every disclaimer. No question. That's one of the other things that actually made me become a user and trust you guys is the fact that you said that to me the first time we talked, I was like, okay, he, he knows that this is wild and definitely a different version of the future. Uh, so one of my mentors, uh, and, uh, a uh, guest on the show, a guy named Sandy Kemper that runs a company in Kansas City called C2FO. He has this metaphor uh, called the giraffe, which is basically the, the first person or company or whatever it was that stuck their neck out for you, kind of to help you become what you've become. Like their first, uh, I think his giraffe was like the, the Toys R Us CEO stepped up and was their first customer kind of a thing. Who who was the giraffe for you guys? I imagine there was someone or some organization along the way that was like, okay, we see this. Here you go. Here's a pedestal to go function on. That's a good question. I think that it became real in a couple of places. One, I was always somebody like I've gotten fired from every single job and some of it's by design. I get to a point, like I always got to a point where I was like, I want to do something on my own. I don't want to be here. And uh, a long time ago, my dad told me, he said, it was like, whether you, whether you're right or you're wrong, when you're an asshole, like you're wrong. That's just how it is. So that was the first part. Like I, oh, I have a temper. A lot of times everyone around me knows like when things aren't going right, sometimes I wear it on my sleeve. I'm an emotional creative. Yeah. New and Yorkers you know, are never that way. So that's kind of surprising. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. Yeah. It's more of a Midwest. That's a, that's very much a Midwest personality. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. We're, we're much more, you know, yeah, we're and much, aggressive. Yeah, we're so really funny. aggressive over here in the Midwest. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But he kind of told me that, and that, that changed me a lot of ways at the time too. We work at the same company. I was getting fired from that company. He told me that. And it was something where like, you know, you realize that, I, I'm trying to get a better hold of my emotions and sometimes it's tough, but asshole is not a personality. Like that's kind of what I, I came out of that with. 
So that led to like me saying yes to a lot more opportunities. A lot more people want to talk. So by chance, we had a pop up in uh, in New York where we were about to launch, and we were like, let's just get, let's spend like ten grand and just get a space in Soho between all these awesome like super high end stores. We're on the same block as like Chanel and across from Buscemi and around the corner from Louis Vuitton on Wooster Street. And we found a place with a garage and it had like a big door in the front. It was super old school, like a gallery. We rolled two cars and the first two of the first three cars we did was a Ferrari Tessarossa and a blue uh, Porsche Speedster from the 50s. Mm. And we opened the garage door. We sent out an email to like the thousand users that we had at that point. And we're like, come by, have a drink on us. It was Thanksgiving weekend, 2017. Oh, wow. um, and we just opened the garage door and we staffed it for a weekend. It was, a, we got lucky. It was right. It was Black Friday. It was right. It was a super warm day. So it wasn't like uh, 10 degrees. The block was packed and a bunch of people walked in. So like Scott Disick came in by chance and a few, a few other people that he was with and they were asking questions about what we did and they were super into it. Then like three or four other people came in. We didn't know who they were at the time. It turned out they were like uh, a bunch of venture capital guys and they, they had follow-up questions. That was a big one. But the big one was uh, Jeff Crundon, who was the founder of, um, of uh, Acorns came in and I didn't know, I don't know who he was. It was completely by chance. And I was super, super tired. It was like the end of the day. We had been like doing 20 hour shifts and it was all sales. We were trying to get as much out of that weekend as possible. And uh, he was, I forget the questions he asked. I got to bring this up to him and ask him again. But I remember thinking in my head, like, why is this guy asking so many specific questions? I, I don't know who he was. And I thought it was like a potential competitor. You're thinking like, what are people thinking about right now? Why is this me? Paranoid. <laughs> yeah. But in my head, I'm, I'm like, don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. Answer every single question. And it was like, we were about to close the door. And uh, when it was all said and done, he was like, I'm going to drop you an email. And he emailed later and it was from the Acorns address. And he was like, yeah, Jeff, I met up with you this weekend. We should talk more. I CC'd, uh, he CC'd somebody else on that as well, who was the, um, who was uh, a, another founder for another FinTech company, uh, Eli Broverman, who was from uh, Betterment. Oh yeah. Like, we yeah. So then like that led to uh, some of the best conversation introductions I've ever had, like from that one conversation. Um, and it was like a moment where we were about to say, no, like don't come in. And I realized in retrospect, like that, a, they became investors. They became like, you no know, mentors to the company. It's what we do. And they have, they had so many inroads in the spaces that we were going into. And whether it was from a regulatory perspective, from a legal perspective, from a user growth perspective, like every conversation that's come inbound from them, has been super meaningful to the business. And it was like a very much like a, it started with that personal sort of one-on-one -on -one communication where it was like, answer every question the best possible way that you can and don't walk away from a conversation because it could be anybody. So from that point forward too, it's been like something I try and instill in our whole team and something from a customer service standpoint, I think gets lost a lot because the idea of one-on-one -on -one communication is not scalable a lot of times. But to me, I'd rather like lay in bed answering emails and DMs and talk to anybody than just sit there and like zone out and watch TV because that to me is about what I'm building and somebody who took faith in our business and cares about what we do. There's no reason I shouldn't be having that one-on-one -on -one conversation no matter how busy I get until the point. Like if I can't get back to people for a few days, that's fine. But from that point forward, like that was the catalyst for a lot that happened with the business, but a lot of the way that we built the community around our business as well from that point forward that's not just a mental model that's helpful for your team. I mean, that's something that we should all be teaching our kids at the end of the day, right? Like that's something that like the United States, the world, especially the United States needs more of, right? Yeah, just like, let's talk to anybody and let's have a conversation and the best ideas can come out of left field, right? Like you didn't know who Kanye was. 
Nah, I mean, for what it's worth, like we, I didn't, when, when John Monopoly called me that time, that was like the biggest thing that happened in my career, but it led to so many good conversations. And even right. to this day, I've always treated it as work, but I've worked in so many different things inside music and creative directed a bunch of different albums, a bunch of different people. And most of it is in rap music. And a lot of it is like, there's this, there's a lot of, a lot that happens in, in black music in particular, which was always called like urban. And that was always the worst name. Sony urban was the label. And the idea was that like, you know, that's its own little subgenre. It's going to stick to itself. It's going to have its own conversations, but now it's pop music. Like you see, like if that, if that was the case, if, if everybody was shutting the door and saying like rap music stays in the rap music category, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have like the emotion and so much stuff that we have right now, which is so everything in culture, everything we do is driven by, yeah. is driven by rap music. Like it's all driven every piece of fashion, culture, everything that comes with it. But that comes from like, people have to break that mold and you have to have conversations. You have to sort of branch out from what you do and understand different people's perspectives, different music, different types of people, different, read different books, have different conversations. All of it is something I've been doing my whole career. I feel like I've, I've always kind of been an outsider a little bit all my entire career, but it's gotten to a point that like, I've developed so many close relationships with people that I'd have no business. If I just didn't have the conversation or stayed in my own little bubble, you would have never had the conversation with that I've done so much for my career, but it does stuff for you personally too. Like to have a different perspective and hear somebody's feedback on you sometimes it sucks to hear it but it's a must and i think that that was like that whole giraffe moment is like my dad saying don't be an asshole to everybody you got to pick and choose and then having like a couple people take a chance on us without having to come into the conversation saying who they were just asking questions and being a part of the communication and part of that conversation which is how we built this product you know do you think this could have do you do you think you'd be where you're at as a human as and as a company without New York? I mean, it's weird. Cause like New York is the home of finance the same way that like all the big social companies tend to come out of California and Northern California. Yeah. I think that we looked at it like we're all from here. Like I, New York, you kind of know how it is too. Like when people born in New York, don't ever want to leave New York. You have the, there's a weird chip on the shoulder type of thing where it's like, I'll be here forever. Like yeah. I would love to have a place in Paris or in like, or in Malibu, like to go chill for a few weeks at a time or in Miami. But I leave here for too long yeah. and I get itchy. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I can't, I can't be away from New York for too long. So I think the yeah. building in New York, building in New York and building FinTech in New York gives you exposure to a community that you don't get elsewhere. Sometimes I think that's been a really important part of how we built this business because, you know, we have our office, we put in Soho on Lafayette street and we have like our small little museum downstairs that is open to the public and it's closed right now because of COVID. But you know, it's a retail experience more than it is fintech. And we always want to make it that. So being in the heart of Soho, where it's so many different tours, so many different people from all over the world, be able to come in and ask questions one at a time and understand what this is and just have like that kind of that conversation about what we could be as a business. That's that to us has informed so much of the product that we've built. And I would worry if we were elsewhere that we didn't have that personal communication or touch with people literally off the street at times about what we do. That being said, like, the infrastructure of fintech is everywhere now. And like our biggest partners are in like one of our biggest partners in Iowa, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, they're like, they run a lot of what we do as a business. They're a huge integrated part of what we do. Yeah. Another one in Florida, another one's in Texas. So it's like, yep. it's in so many places now. And the Midwest is such a thriving ecosystem for new ideas. Like, you know, New York takes those ideas half the time and, and plug and uses the pipes and plugs into something else, but it's happening everywhere. The one-on-one -on -one conversations, I think in New York were a very, very important part of what we built though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, shout, shout out to Ben, shout out to Dwala, yeah, shout, shout out to Dwala, shout out to Dwala, but 
I still stick by like, yeah, yeah. Maybe you're taking pieces of it and you transplant it here, you transplant it there. But like the fashion scene, the, the fact that, you know, even some of the shoes that have been worn in games on the platform, like those shoes aren't as valuable if those shoes don't get worn in Madison square garden, you know, and like shit like that, like it's New York. It is. It's, it's Mecca to everything we're talking about. It's the cultural hub. It's the melting pot of all of it. So I just before I, you know, I was, I've done a lot of reading and everything else thinking about a lot of this, but I've never really thought through how big of a deal that is. So anyways, it's just, I miss New York, I guess is the main takeaway. It's just like, fuck, yeah. I haven't been in like a year and a half and good God, everybody drives so slow where I am. And I'm like, ready to get back to, <laughs> ready to get back to it. That's the thing that hustle, like that hustle, like the literal hustle of like moving in the streets. That's the, I get pissed when I'm going up like an escalator and there's three people standing across yeah. like, by them type of thing. But that also like, it's not always good. That go, go, go attitude is good when you're in the process of building, but when you want to like reset and think about what you're up to, and really put creative thought. Like I love being alone doing that. And that's yeah. like, that to me, like, I think that happens in any city. And I think like, you know, things have changed. I was very, in my head, when this first started, COVID first started, I was thinking in my head, like New York is going to bounce back super, super quick. And everybody's going to want to be in an office before 2020 ends. We'll be back to that. I still think that there's going to be like that, that need to form as a community one-on-one face-to-face but you realize now, like being distributed and being in places where your, your brain can grow and meet new people and talk about different environments, it is important for any business and for any product that you're trying to build too. Because if you're just building for New York, it's cool to have access to 11 million people, but you know, there's 300 million other people who, want, who would love your product and they might not vibe with that same feel, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a big country, right? And there's a lot of sides to it. And I think the, without getting into it, I think the past four years are a good, uh, good explanation of that, right? Like we have our perspective, but no question, man. It's pretty obvious that there's a lot of different people than you and I, no question. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, small towns in West Virginia that maybe might not vibe with the conversation we're having right now, but we, we persevere. Um, All right, bro. So I I know we're kind of coming up on time here a little bit, but a couple of the things that I really wanted to ask about before we get, uh, before we get off, I think Alexis Ohanian is one of the investors in rally. Is that true? Yeah. 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 He's been also like, again, one of those situations where somebody who was a user of the platform before he was an investor, which is the way we always try and deal with like new people coming on board, which is always great to have. I love it. Yeah. So he, he tweeted something the other day that grabbed me. He said, Mark, my words were in the early innings of alternative assets. And he was linking to this article about a Mickey Mantle card selling for $5.2 million. Just give me your thesis on kind of the future of, and what do you call it? Like, is it collectible assets? Is it alternative assets? Like, how do you define that? And talk to me about like what you think the future of that is. And it, cause it really does feel like we're in, in the things where we don't even like have the right buzzword for it yet or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's two things that go along with that. First off, Alexis has seen around these corners and he understands a building community, but B like what these things that have a mix of emotional and actual value mean. And he's been someone who's been ahead of it for a long time. Um, he, we sent him, we sent him a, uh, a golden eye video game, like uh, Fitz and the team were like, we got to put something together for, for Alexis. We sent him like a game that he wanted. And he sent me and he texted me two days ago. And it was like, uh, I didn't have his new number in my phone. I was like, yo, I don't have this number in my phone. He's like, it's golden eye Ohani. you know what I mean? So it's like this thing where you have this like, this connection to something from when you're younger and he knows his value in it now. And he's been on top of that the same way that we have been. So he's been a super big supporter of what we do, but also he sees the same thing that we do. I think that we're now in this zero yield environment. And like, 
the amount of money being printed by the powers that be, it's impossible to ignore and real scarcity has become increasingly important. So that rotation out of this like standard retail investment vehicle, whether it's 401ks or index funds, it's found its way to the asset classes that are you know, showing better yield right now. And again, this is not investment advice, but you can kind of see it on paper, it's real. They're not just showing that, that better yield, but they're also more interesting to a 25 or a 30 year old. And that means everything from Bitcoin to Pokemon to the Mickey Mantle card. It's something where you might see something like a Mickey Mantle card and wonder why is this card $5.2 million? But the people that know it best know the history of it. Yeah. So you're talking about something from 1952, something that it was sold, you know, with the great, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. It was printed in a way that they made so few that were perfect. And that were that PSA nine version that sold for 5.2 million a bunch of them were dumped into the Atlantic Ocean. So it's got a crazy story along with it. It almost bankrupted the, t- the brothers who created Tops. Wow. It's this long trajectory, but it's also something that now you look back on. And I say, I use this, this analogy and I use this saying all the time, but it's true. The average lifespan of a, a company that IPOs on any index is around 12 years right now from getting delisted, going bankrupt, going private. A Mickey Mantle car from 1952, it has return history and details and all that stuff. For seven decades, you know what I mean? Like we're at a point now you can look back on that and really understand why it works and understand the scarcity value. So there wasn't an option for someone to own a $5 million baseball card before a $10 million card. Companies like ours who make that possible now have galvanized this group of young, really interesting and culturally relevant individuals who have a say in where the market's going to go and gives them access to the stuff they know is valuable in their heart of hearts. And also they can see some of the returns that go with it. So you know, as the money printers stay on, it feels like it's never going to be a situation where scarcity isn't really important, but it does feel like this momentum shift that happened during COVID is here to stay. What that means for prices, I have no idea, Yeah, but it does mean that the stuff that has real interest and makes people happy is going to be more important than the stuff that just prints cash. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. This has been a blast, man. And I want to be respectful of time and we're coming up on it here. So we're going to have to do a second one of these at some point. Cause I just absolutely fucking love talking to you. Like the intersection of all these things is just, I appreciate it, man. This I'm is addicted just, to it, man. This is a super disjointed conversation too. So my bad, I'll get next time around. I'll have some, some outline on paper. I like talking to you. So I just want to go off the cuff. Next no, time. dude, the, the disjointment is fun. I love to just have a comment about this stuff with you. So let's use the last couple minutes um, just as a little commercial for you. What's the best way to get in touch with Rob? If folks have questions, what's the best way to learn more or sign up for rally and any jobs people should be looking at like you guys hiring what what should people be looking out for right now yeah a couple of things i mean uh, in terms of rally well, on twitter we're on rally rd where rally r-a-l-l-y on instagram that's the best way to contact us uh rally rd.com any version of rallyroad.com will bring you to us uh you know we're running ipos every single day basically a lot of cool stuff happening on platform but we're also expanding and growing rapidly so i think as a business we always want to talk to Anyone who's smart, ambitious, understands this space in any capacity and wants to learn, those are the people we want to talk to. So we're always hiring. Um, in terms of me, I'm Rob Petroza on every platform, but also I want to talk to anybody who's really thinking about alternative assets or think about this product or anyone who has feedback, especially if you hate what we do, I want to talk to you. If you hate the idea of it, if you hate the product, if you have feedback, this isn't some nonsense where it goes into a queue like I listen and we move quick on it. So DM me, call me, 90,000 people have my phone number. I'm happy to give it out. I won't do it here, but next time maybe, but drop me any type of message like Rob, uh, Rob Petrozo on all platforms. Always open to talk uh, any of these things that we're working on. Rob, thanks for the time, man. This has been a blast and we'll do it again soon. Yeah, Zach, likewise, man. I really appreciate it. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Rob Petroza. We made enough references to Sir Hova, Mr. Carter, whatever you want to call him, that I had to switch the music up here at the end a little bit. If you want to learn more about Rally, I put pertinent links and more info about Rally specifically in the show notes, more about Rob, where to get a hold of him, etc., etc. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, as I said at the beginning, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and go Chiefs! We'll get them next year, baby. We'll get them next year.